Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to the Grace Course Podcast, and this is part five of our six-part series on Romans. And this week, we're going to look at the law. We're going to go into some nitty-gritties. We're going to cover about 50 Bible verses. We're going to go into some history. We're going to look at the end of the world. We're going to look at some of Jesus's prophecies. We're going to leave no stone uncovered, and we're going to find that the law is not our friend as a Christian. And that's quite a shock for a lot of people. It's quite a paradigm shift. It is going to be awesome. And so I have no doubt you're going to enjoy this week. One quick announcement before we get started, I'm going to be doing another couple of Q&A tours questioning our answers. Um, These are great meetings for people that just have a lot of questions, want to create a safe space to ask them. Um, They can be in churches, but often they're better not, uh, better not in a confine where um, asking questions is sometimes a little bit more taboo. It's great to be in homes. We can rent little back rooms in a restaurant or something like that. I'm I'm open to whatever um, people have in mind. I'm looking to come to the South over in the States and on the West Coast in the States as well. I'm looking to try and do a tour from San Diego all the way up potentially into Canada, up into like Vancouver area as well. Um, and that'll be great. And I'm also going to be touring the UK as well. Um, and so if you're in the UK, especially give me a shout. I mean, I can basically drive out to you in a few hours. So um, it's so much easier to, to do some stuff here in the UK. And, and I'd love to be a part of um, anything that you, you've got going on as well. Um, all right, well, let's just dive into uh, our Roman series. This one is, of course, on the law. Hope you enjoy it. Cool. So we're, we're walking through Romans. Uh, we're um, looking at some of the different topics. We've looked at the law. Uh, we've looked at uh, sin. We've looked at faith. We've looked at um, Paul undoing what uh, the Jews thought their patriarchy was, their their they're standing as Abraham's kids, and he's kind of unraveled that and said, well, we're all Abraham's kids if we believe. Um, and so we've kind of looked at some of these topics, and you're remembering, like, Paul is just, like, poking the hornet's nest, you know I mean? Like, he's just constantly, like, touching on these really big topics for Jews. You know I mean? This is, you don't really want to do it. I mean, it really is, like, running up, swinging at the, the wasp's nest or something, and running away, going, <laughs> um, I mean, this is kind of crazy when you actually stop and think of it in the context, like, Paul is being really offensive, um, but he's doing it with a reason. He's doing it with a purpose. He's trying to level the playing field. He's trying to help uh, people from a Jewish background realize that their Jewish background isn't what benefits them. It's not why God loves them. It's not why God's pleased with them. God loves them because they're human beings. He loves everyone. And actually, he's trying to kill any of that. And can you imagine how significant this would be if you were a Jew living in Rome? I mean, you're not the main population. If you're a Jew in Jerusalem, God loves the Jews, well, that's fine because you can look at your neighbor and love them very easily, yeah? Because all your neighbors are Jews. So if you have this, Jews are better than other people, it probably wouldn't have affected your day-to-day as much as if you have that view in the middle of Rome, and you're thinking, well, we're Jews, we're God's chosen people, and everyone else is crap. Well, everyone else is everyone else, right? I mean, they are the the people that you see and you look down on and you, you think are useless. And so this has serious ramifications as well, because... If they understand that the people that are their neighbors truly are loved and accepted and and just as valuable and important as other Jewish people, this could have major ramifications uh, on how they interact with the the Roman population. Um, And so, yeah, some big stuff. And as we go through, we we kind of realize, well, um, you know, Romans... uh, uh, one through three was kind of laying this foundation of like, you're, you're crappy, you're crummy, you know, we're all kind of in a big mess, whether you're Jew, whether you're not, we all have some serious issues. But, but, just as all have kind of like uh, 
uh, fallen short, all have found themselves not living up to this perfect standard, all of us have been accepted and forgiven and, and embraced by Jesus. Um, and then out of that, he then talks about, um, we, we've gone through Romans 4, Romans 5, Romans 6, and we, we went through uh, what, does, what is uh, faith, what does it look like to believe, what does it look like to be in Abraham, what does it look like to sin, is sin something you do, or is it a deeper root thing with, of how do I believe, is it, is it something to do with a condition of belief rather than a thing you do, and then we looked at what does it look like to be dead and to your sin, to your old self, no longer living that way, but being alive, being this completely new creation, something that has never existed before, that, you know, if you throw the log in the stream, it used to flow one way, well, the stream has flipped directions and now it flows the other way. So you now tend to righteousness in the same way that before you might have tended to do some pretty awful things or crummy things, now you tend to do some amazing things just because that's just who you are. You're righteous, you are going to do righteous acts. And so we kind of finished up there about um, uh, in Romans 6, and we're going to go into Romans 7, and Paul um, kind of shifts gears a little. He starts uh, introducing some new uh, topics, and it's very clear what he introduces. And a lot of people use Romans 7 to teach the concept of there's a sinful nature. They love, uh, I don't know if you've been around uh, any churches that kind of have a concept of we're, we're, we're sinful, we've got a sinful nature, we have to war with it, and that's kind of Christianity is you war with your sinful nature, you struggle with being a sinner. Um, and cleaning yourself up and dealing with yourself. And we talked about that yesterday, and you can tell that that's probably not what Romans 7 is going to be about. Why? Because Romans 5 and 6 were all about the fact that your old self is dead. And so it would be really weird if Romans 5 and 6 were all about your old self is dead, it's dead, it's dead, it's dead, it's buried, it's crucified, it's baptized to death, it's dead, it's dead, it's dead. And then the next chapter would be like, right, so your old self that you're struggling with, right? That would be a really weird message, Yeah. Um, and so, but many people do. They grab Romans 7 out of context and they'll talk about it as if it's talking about the old self. Um, so what is it talking about? So we'll turn and we'll look at Romans 7. Again, I'm reading from the ESV. So if you can um, read a similar literal translation, you'll find it easy enough to follow along. Otherwise, just uh, close your eyes and enjoy it. I'm, I promise I'm not changing anything. Um, okay, so, or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Okay, so immediately we know from the first verse he's introducing a topic and he's talking to those who are under the law. So he's talking to these Jewish people that have lived under the law their whole lives. He's saying, I'm speaking to you because you know the law. And he's like, the law is binding as long as you live. And so he's now starting to talk about the law. Okay, and this is where he introduces a topic and he starts to bring in the law. Now he's been, he's touched on the law throughout Romans and we'll, we'll see that in a second. But at this point he starts to focus on the law. And so we know he's not talking about um, my sinful self. He's not talking about this. He's not talking about, he's talking predominantly, he's fixated uh, right now. He's changed the topic. He's talking about the law. He says, the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Okay, so that's a fairly simple um, example because it works today's culture as well, right? So, you know, a lot of times when you read the Bible, you're like, uh, what? And you have to understand the context and then take it into today and reinterpret it. But that's a really simple context. He says, look, if you get married to someone, the law says they're your husband and 
you want to go and live with someone else, that's adultery. And, and that works in 21st century you know, Britain. That's how we would see the whole situation. If you were married to someone, you went off and slept with someone else, that's an adulterous relationship. Um, and it says, you're married to that person until you die, okay? And there's maybe other concepts of divorce or whatever, else, but the law is there. You're, you're bound to this person, and the only way that the law ceases to be is if you die. And so then they say, but, you know, if this woman is married to this guy and she wants to be, mar she wants to be with this other guy, if her husband dies, she's free to be with the other man. That's okay, like, that's, that's reasonable, you know, her husband is dead and it's reasonable for her to want to have a new relationship. And so he's kind of setting this framework and it's like, that makes sense, yeah. So the, the law is only binding you while one of the parties is alive. When it, when it ceases, then there's a freedom to go and marry the other person. And so he says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law and having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, not the old way of the written code. So what's he saying here? He's saying, look, that example I just gave you of man, woman, death, new thing, this is how it worked for Christianity. You were married to one thing, and the law was binding you to that thing, okay? So you were married to one way of living, um, and it was not healthy, it wasn't a good marriage. This is an abusive marriage, you know? So you're married, and you, you're trying to um, do through the law everything that you need to do, and you're trying, and, and it doesn't go well, right? So it's this old self, it's this old way of doing it, it's, it's fixating on your, your beliefs and your ability to do things, your own way to figure out what's right and wrong, and it doesn't go well. He says, but there's a death. That died and now you've raised up anew and you're free to marry another and you've been married to Christ you've been married to a whole new way of being a whole new world has opened up for you and so he's he's introducing the fact that the law is no longer binding us we're no longer bound by the law and he says actually he says it's while we were living it in our own our own ways uh, it was the law that aroused sinful desire it's the law that made us want to sin. So this law actually wasn't particularly helpful. It wasn't our friend. And that's really offensive, because who's he writing to? The Jews. And what is everything for a Jew? The law. And so if he says, well, actually, the law was the problem, you go, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean the law's problem? The law's our only thing we got. That's how we get right with God. And he's like, yeah, how's it working, right? Because that's the thing, you can go, oh, well, yeah, yeah, the Ten Commandments. And you're like, well, have you ever actually looked at the Ten Commandments and gone, oh, yeah, great, I'm good. I mean, they're not particularly encouraging, right? I mean, even if you go to Jesus' standard, it's even worse, right? You know, Jesus is like, you've heard it says, don't commit adultery. And you're all thinking, yeah, okay, good, I got it. And he's like, yeah, but if you've ever looked at someone, that's the problem. And you're like, oh, crap, <laughs> right? And so, you know, this is, this is pretty extreme uh, standard, and none of us kind of look at it and think, yay! We look at it and go, oh crap, I need help, <laughs> right? And that's what the law does. It kind of, it shows you, oh, I need help. Um, and so we, uh, we, we've got this kind of introduction to the law, and he's saying, look, the law didn't help us. It wasn't something that helped us, and thankfully we've died, and we've been bound now to Jesus by grace, rather than being bound to our own sinful desires and wants by the law. 
Um, and so he continues on, and he says, look, what will we say then? So he's doing another hypothetical question, because he can see where the Jews will go. He's like, what do you mean? What do you mean, touch our law? He says, what should we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Um, but sin seized an opportunity through the commandment, producing in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. For the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So he's saying, look, you know, like he's saying, well, what are you saying? So because the law causes us to sin, you're saying the law is sin? He's like, no, 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 the law is not sin. The law is great. The law is fine. You know, he's like, the law says, don't covet. Like, you know, don't look at your neighbor's wife and think, oh, I'd like to sleep with her. Or don't, you know, go, oh, I'd quite like to murder him. Like, I mean, the law saying do not murder, good law. I mean, great job, God. Top-notch law, good idea. Don't kill people, right? I mean, it's, it's not a bad thing. But what he's saying is the problem is that when you give this law, it, it shows you what's wrong, so you don't know something's wrong until you've been told it's wrong. But at the same time, when you're told something's wrong, what do you want to do? You kind of want to do it. It's the big red button in the room that has a big arrow pointing to the red button and a sign saying, do not press this red button. What do you want to do? More than anything in the world, like just anything in the world, you're like, I kind of want to press that red button. Because what the heck's going to happen when I press that red button, you know? They've done um, studies on uh, kids, and uh, it's really funny. It's really rudimentary studies, and it's really complex and, and deep studies they've done on kids with, uh, with this, just to kind of show, um, is it just built into us as humans uh, that we've really struggled not to do what we're told when there's, there's some element of desire in, in play? And they've, they've done things like they've put um, like a little sweet, like a jelly baby in a room, and they put it on a table. Um, jelly baby is just a little candy, uh, like delicious. Um, put it on the table. And they've got two kids in the room, and uh, they go, all right, uh, maybe, there's, maybe there's two sweets probably. Uh, and they put the two sweets on the table, and they go, all right, guys, we're just um, popping out. Um, and I think what they do is they get a big bag of jelly babies, and they put that, and they put two out, and they're like, okay, oh, wait, hold on, I forgot something. I'll be back in just a few minutes. Um, don't eat those yet, and if you don't eat those, you can eat the whole bag when I get back. And, and they pop out the room. And they never last two minutes. I mean, they just don't. Why? Because they want the jelly babies. And you've got two jelly babies right in front of them. It's like, I want to eat these right now. And it's so funny. You see their process. They look at it. And it's funny because it's like almost an accountability as well. So they've done this with individual kids. Boom, they're gone like that. I mean, they're just not even going to, there's no chance. But with two, it takes a little bit longer. They're kind of like, oh, no, no, we shouldn't. And it's like, yeah, but, oh, yeah, you're right. And then it's like, well, you know, what about... And they're, they're like, like discussing it. And it only takes like a minute and a half for this discussion to whittle down to like, let's just eat the jelly baby. But uh, and it's funny. But one of the things like you'll find consistently is they kind of like discuss, well, well, it's not going to hurt to like smell it, is it? And so they're like, oh, she didn't say don't smell it. She said don't eat it, I guess. And then the other one's like, oh, you licked it. And it's like, well, I didn't eat it. I just tasted it. And, and they're like, oh, I want it. And they're and they're licking it. And you know, but the, the, what, what do we do? We tell, we tell ourselves, don't do that. And immediately it's like, oh, it's like in a garden. Don't eat that fruit. What do they do? I mean, there's fruit everywhere. I mean, it's the garden of Eden. I mean, there's a tree called the tree of life. I mean, how do you not just sit and eat that fruit? 
But God goes, well, don't eat this one. And what does it do? It just immediately, we're like, that looks good though, doesn't it? I mean, there's something, what is that that's built into us? And, and this is what Paul's talking about, that, that this, this concept of law, this thing that says this is right and this is wrong, what it does is it actually agitates something that, that makes me go, I kind of want to do that. Um, or I don't want to do that, right? I mean, how many people have a problem where, you know, you just, I don't know about you, I'm really bad for this, I'm really rebellious, but, you know, if there's rules like saying, like, don't, you do, don't do this, or don't do that, don't walk on the grass, and you go, well, why should I not walk on the grass? It's just grass, like, chill out, and I'm, I'm immediately kind of like, you know, just, I'll just put a little tiptoe over there on the grass. <laughs> you know, manacle evil me. Um, but, you know, there's, there's this thing of, like, we kind of, we can't help it in some sense, can we? There's this things of, you, you give these rules and it immediately agitates us and it, and it, and it stirs us up. And, and this is what Paul's talking about. He's saying, look, the laws aren't bad. That keep off the grass is probably there for a good reason. You're probably gonna ruin the grass and they just planted seeds or, you know, but it's not good for you to have that sign. And in fact, you probably were just gonna walk on the path until you saw the sign, keep off the grass. You know, and you're like, well, why, why shouldn't we? You're not my boss, you know? <laughs> I don't know. Like, um, and so, yeah, he's, he's, not, he's, he's wanting the Jews to understand, look, these laws you were given are not bad laws. They're good laws, but they've not done you good. Here we are thousands of years later, and have any of you done them well? <laughs> no one's done them well. We've all messed up and need all these sacrifices to fill in the gaps for every time we drop the ball. Um, so he continues on, and he's talking about, and he says, um, did that which is good then bring death to me by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment which might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. So this is where people jump in and go, oh, oh, Paul's talking about, you know, his sinful nature and how much he's going to struggle and all this different stuff. But remember, we're keeping it in the context. What is he talking about? The law. What question is he answering? Is the law sinful? Is the law something that brings me death? And, he, and this is the context he's answering, okay? So he's saying, so they're saying, look, boy, is the law bad? Is, is, does it, is the law what kills you? And he says, no, no, no. Sin is what kills you. And he says, now, he's like, I, uh, so, go, so we know the law is not a, a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. It's, it's these spiritual truths. And he says, but I am flesh sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, does it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that what, when I do what I want, what, sorry. So I find it to be a law that when I do what I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law wages war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And this is really complex. You've got the law of your mind, the law of God, the law of sin. You've got, you, it's so complex. You're reading an NIV, I know it. No, 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 no. I'm no? Oh, no, no. I'm, I'm saying, Gary, yeah, I know, because it <laughs> says sinful nature, sinful nature, sinful nature all the way through. So this is saying that there is a sinful nature. Yeah. Put that to the side just now because. Yeah. Put 
put that to the side because the NIV is an awful translation in this context. So, and I'll, and I'll explain why. Um, so in, in this text, you'll notice I'm saying flesh. I find in my flesh. Uh, and, and so Paul talks about flesh uh, often throughout his letters. You'll see him cont contrast flesh and spirit, walking in the spirit and living in the flesh. And so there's two different realities that we have an opportunity as believers, okay? So we have this old way of doing things, of living according to our understanding, our way, um, and that is what Paul consistently refers to as, as walking in the flesh. As, as, and, and, and it's context of flesh in the sense of it's me, 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 me. But walking in the spirit is what he contrasts it with. And we're going to get there. So that's why I'm kind of like, uh, we'll get there and we'll, we'll, we'll fill this out. Um, walking in the spirit is not walking me, 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 me. It's saying it's no longer I that live, but Christ in me. And it's a choice of walking as we, okay? And I'll unpack that a little bit later on. But it's the contrast of do I live me or we. So in the day-to-day -day life, am I, am I thinking of things as me, I, myself, or am I thinking us, we? You know, it's me and Jesus, it's me and Holy Spirit, it's me and God. And those two contrasts are very different. So you've got fleshly reality. I'm going to figure out what's right. I'm going to figure out what's wrong. I'm going to do this. I'll try it as hard as I can. It's me, 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 me. Um, it's, it's devoid of us. It doesn't have Jesus in the equation. It doesn't have Holy Spirit. It doesn't have Father. It's, I'm going to do this. And this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, when you are living in that reality of me, 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 law comes in and says, don't do this. And he goes, ah, when I, uh, all I do is do the wrong thing. It says, don't do this. And I do it almost immediately. And then I see another law that says, but do this. And he's like, and I can't do it. And he's like, and, and so he's, he's contrasting that, you know, this isn't, who we are, we're not this person, but it's easy to step into being this person. You know, it's very easy for us to, um, to, to engage in this reality of me. And so it's not that, um, that this old self is alive and well, but he speaks again in Romans 6, he says, but don't raise it up and live again. You know, so we were talking about yesterday, it's dead, it's buried, it's crucified, but it's easy enough for us to kind of switch off and step back into me mode. And I think actually this is what we do day in, day out, is we often find ourselves, I don't know about you, I find myself throughout my day realizing, oh, I completely forgot Jesus is even part of this equation today. Yeah. Like I've been plowing ahead doing my own thing and now I'm kind of like realizing, oh, I've probably made a few messes on the way actually. I've upset this person and I did that and shouldn't have done that. And actually it's a, okay, God, help me realize this is a we thing, not a me thing. So let's actually talk about that a little bit more. Let's unpack this, this context because um, this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, I, I find in myself, if I, if I, if I am under the, in the flesh, if I, if I get into this mode of living me, 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 I screw up almost on the spot. I want to do something and I don't because I know it's good. I know the law. And you've got to feel for Paul. Paul was an expert. I mean, Paul was groomed to be one of the next leaders of Israel. I mean, of, of, of Jewish uh, uh, religion, you know, so not you know, a king reign, but like, you know, a, a, a high up scribe, a Pharisee. Um, and so he knows the law better than probably anyone. You know, he knows it inside and out. And he's, he's left with uh, this problem of, I know the laws better than anyone. So I know when I'm in me mode, I know exactly what to do. And I know exactly what not to do. And it makes it even harder because I can't do those things and I, and I can't help but do those things. You know, he's, he's constantly at war with himself and he gets into this tangle. Now, what I want to do is I want to now look at the law. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, step out of Romans for just now, although we'll touch on some of the things in Romans. And I just want to read through some of the, the passages because you'll find 
the law is a complex topic in most Christians' lives because we don't really know what to do with the law. You look through uh, the, the, the first five books of the Bible, it's full of rules. You know I mean? You've got um, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They're full of all these different rules and regulations, aren't they? And when we look at it, we go, well, that's in the Bible. That's, that's what God told us to do. So we, sh- we got to do these things, right? And this is why we talked about yesterday, you know, people going, well, what do we do? Because we then have, end up kind of picking and choosing what we like, right? I mean, because, we, well, we can, you know, uh, go to church when we've got a period. But we aren't allowed tattoos. I don't like those. Or we can wear clothes that have cotton and nylon. But, ooh, I don't want any gay people. No, no, that's not okay. And so we pick and choose and we decide when we look back at the Old Testament laws, we're picking and choosing which ones are appropriate, which ones aren't. Um, And you know what? Many of the laws are very appropriate. Many of the laws are are helpful, but there's contextual elements in that as well. But the thing is that what I want to kind of um, build a framework here for you is is I want you to find that the law, whilst it's helpful for us to learn and, and read and understand the context and what was God doing and all these things, For us today, the law is a complete irrelevancy in application. I don't want you, if I I can do one thing for you today, is I want you to walk out that door and think, I'm never, ever going to live under the law ever again. And this is what Paul's trying to do in Romans. He's trying to dismantle this way of life for Judaism where they live under the law. And so in the early church, there was a lot of complexities around the law. There was a lot of um, struggling with the law because a lot of the early church came out of Judaism. I mean, a vast majority of it, it was coming out of Jerusalem and the Jews were spreading. And and for the most part, they were only teaching other Jews, right? I mean, how many times did they get in trouble for this? I mean, Paul's pretty much the only guy that's speaking to non-Jews, apart from Peter. Way later, like God has to give him this epic vision, you know? And, And it's like, for crying out loud, Peter, Jesus told you to go to the ends of the earth. Like, what did you think? Go over to the ends of the earth and find a Jew to tell about the gospel. I mean, like, come on, Peter. Obviously, I meant the Gentiles. You know, it's kind of crazy. But anyway, whatever. Um, and so, like, you know, they really needed a push. Um, and so this, this is a massive Judaistic uh, religion still, Christianity at this point. And so Paul really needs to hammer this home. And so do the other uh, writers of the uh, uh, the, the epistles and they're, as they're teaching the church and they're teaching and equipping the church. And so if we want to understand how the law applies to us today, we should be looking at, well, how did the law apply to the early church? What were they teaching? What were they dealing with? When they were writing their letters, dealing with all the church issues and the questions, what were they saying? What were, they, what were their answers? And so I just want to quickly, and I don't like doing this typically, okay? I don't like proof texting. I don't like just pulling a verse out and saying, this is what it means. Um, but I've spent time, and I've, I've ignored a lot of other verses that talk about the law that aren't in context, but I spent time gathering the verses that are in context talking about this, um, and I'm just going to give you a list of them. Um, don't worry too much about writing them all out because we're going to fly through them. If you, if you want to, you can, um, but I'll give you them afterwards. Don't worry about you know, asking every single verse, uh, what was that, what was that. Um, but what I'd encourage you to do is go, go home, you know, spend a, a week at some point, maybe after school or whatever, going through each one of these and read it in context. Understand, you know, this is a really big deal in the early church. This is not something they, they mentioned once and then they just left it. This is something they're mentioning over and over and over again. So I want to just go through some of the New Testament and just look at some of the verses of what were they saying about the law. So in Acts, Acts 15.10 says, the law is an unbearable yoke. Romans 3.20 says the law reveals sin but cannot fix it. Romans 4.14 says if the law worked, then faith would be irrelevant. Romans 4.15 says the law brings wrath upon those that follow it. Romans 5.20, the purpose of the law was sin. 
The purpose of the law was to make you sin. That's kind of crazy. Um, Romans 6, 14, Christians are not under the law. Romans 7, 1 through 6, we just talked about that. Christians have been delivered from the law. They've died and they've been set free from the law. Um, Romans uh, 7, 7 through 12, we talked about that again. The law is good, perfect, and holy, but cannot make you good, perfect, and holy. Romans 7, 10, the law which promises life only brings death. Romans 7, 13, the law makes you sinful beyond measure. Romans 8, 2 through 3, the law is weak. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the strength of sin is the law. 2 Corinthians uh, 3, 7, the law is a ministry of death. 2 Corinthians 3, 9, the law is a ministry of condemnation. 2 Corinthians 3, 10, the law has no glory at all in comparison to the new covenant. 2 Corinthians 3, 11, the law is fading away. And that's one you're like, oh, fading away. Well, maybe it's still kind of around. You know, you think of fading, oh, maybe it's here. So we're going to touch on that. Don't, don't worry. So I, there's only a couple of verses which make it seem like it's still okay. And we'll, we'll, we'll hit those on the head. Um, 2 Corinthians 3, 14 through 15. Now, this is scary, okay? Listen to this one. Anywhere the law is preached, it produces a mind-hardening and heart-hardening veil to Jesus. Anywhere the law is preached, it stops your mind and your heart from seeing Jesus. Well, where's the law preached? Everywhere, right? I mean, well, where do you want to go see Jesus? Church. Oh, well, what's happening in church? Well, we're preaching the law. Ah, this is problematic, right? I mean, or you think, oh, what do we teach our kids? We teach them the Ten Commandments. You know, you look at America and they want to like etch Ten Commandments on the courthouses and, you know, the schools and stuff. And it's like, okay, that's not maybe a good idea. Anywhere the law is preached, it creates a mind-hardening and heart-hardening veil to Jesus. Galatians 2.16 says the law justifies nobody. Galatians 2.19 says Christians are dead to the law. Galatians 2.21 says the law frustrates grace. Galatians 3.1 talks about, it says to go back to the law after embracing faith is stupid, right? As the J.B. Phillips translation says, it's stupid to go back to the law after embracing faith. Galatians 3.10 says the law curses everyone who practices it. Galatians 3.11 through 12 says the law has nothing to do with faith. Galatians 3.13, the law was a curse that Christ has redeemed us from. Galatians 3.16 and 19 says that the law functioned uh, in God's purpose as a temporary covenant from Moses till John the Baptist announced Christ. Galatians 3.21 says if the law worked, God would have used it to save you. That's a really good point, right? I mean, like, if the law was going to work, then why did Jesus come and die? You can imagine Jesus thinking, well, do I have to die? Because they could just, just get their act together and start doing the law. That'd be fine. The law doesn't work. That's why Jesus had to come and save us. Galatians 3.23 says the law was our prison. You know, we look at the law as our helper, and in fact, it's our prison. Galatians 4.24, the law makes you a slave. Ephesians 2.15, Christ has abolished the law, which was a wall of hostility to us. Philippians 3, 4 through 8, Paul considers everything the law gained him as skybalon. Now, skybalon is the Greek word for shit, okay? So, skybalon is a vulgar word for poop, for crap, for trash. I mean, they would, this is the sort of word that they would be spray painting on the walls. You know, it's a vulgar word. It's not, it's not like, you know, everyday words. And Paul just throws it out there. He says, everything the law has gained me, I consider crap. But what's interesting, what does he say? Everything the law has gained me. So when the law worked for Paul, he considers it crap. Not when the law failed even. 
That's strong language, isn't it? It's pretty crazy. Colossians 2.14, the law was nailed to the cross. 1 Timothy 1.8 says that the law is only good if it's used in the right context. That's interesting. Oh, the law is good in the right context. Well, what's the context? The next two verses say, 1 Timothy 1.9 through 10, it was made for the unrighteous, not for the righteous. Well, who are we? We're the righteousness of Christ. We've been made the righteousness of Christ. So the law has a context, but it's not for me. Huh, interesting. Now we'll talk about the context a bit later on um, of how it's good and helpful. Hebrews, we'll, we'll stop here, but Hebrews. Now think about Hebrews, right? Hebrews was written to the Jewish population in Jerusalem. It was written uh, right, uh, right before uh, AD 70. It was written right before the uh, big destruction of Jerusalem and, and the temple. And it's quite an important book. And, the, and the, the author's writing to the Jews and he's trying to encourage them. Look, there's a major difference between Judaism and Christianity. And he's laying out the differences between Judaism and Christianity. Now, you've got to think about this. You're writing this to Jews. Okay, so this is a bit like Romans again, but even more intense probably if you're writing to the Jewish church. And, and the author, we don't know who it is. We still don't. We never have. It's quite interesting. Um, and so what's fascinating about it is you're writing to the Jewish church. I think there's a reason we don't know who it is. I wouldn't put my name on this if I was writing to the Jewish church because they're coming for you. What does he say? He says, the law is weak, useless, and makes nothing perfect. Oh, that's quite strong language when you're writing to the Jews. Hey, everybody, I've got a message for you. Um, the law, the thing you've been following for thousands of years to try and get right, uh, this amazing law that God gave you that's perfect, that's wonderful, that's incredible, and it's so strong and powerful. It's weak, useless, and makes nothing perfect. I mean, you're, you're messing with how they think big time, right? You're really, again, whacking the hornet's nest. Um, Hebrews 8, 7 through 8. God found fault with the law and created a better covenant enacted on better promises. Now that will mess with your heads because who gave the law? But God found fault with the law and created a better covenant and acted on better promises. That's interesting. We'll, we'll talk about that as well. So Hebrews 8, 13. Now, this is the other one that sounds a bit like the 2 Corinthians 3, 11. You remember the law is fading away? Well, 2 Corinthians, uh, sorry, with Hebrews 8, 13 says, it's obsolete, growing old, and ready to vanish. Hebrews 10, 1 says, it's only a shadow of good things to come and will never make something or someone perfect. It's just a shadow of the good things to come. So we'll stop there. I think, you know, you're kind of picking up a theme as you go through the New Testament that is consistent. They're talking about the law quite a bit all the way through. And when they talk about the law, it's not like, yay, we love the law. It's, uh, guys, law, not good, not helpful, not beneficial, not something we should be clinging to and, and holding on to. Um, there's a consistent theme that the law is not your friend. It is not good for you. Now, I know we've bunny trailed, we've, so we've, we've taken a deviation from Romans 7, and we're now talking about the law, and now I'm going to take a deviation from the law, and we're going to talk about something else, okay? So you're going to, we're, we're, we'll, we'll meander back at some point, um, but we're just kind of steering around, just following the train, because I want to tackle these two verses that seem to suggest, well, it's kind of around, right, the law? Kind of around, you know? It's, um, it's growing old, ready to vanish, uh, it's fading away. You know, these two passages talking about what's is kind of, is, is, get, is going. And so you think, well, that was 2,000 years ago. I mean, maybe it's just really, really old now. And it's really ready to vanish. But it's still around a little bit. 
And it's like, well, no, that's not the case. I think it's really important that we, again, look at the context of things. And so a, a good example of this would be um, if you look at when the Bible is written. Okay, So when we look at the Bible, there's nothing in the New Testament that's written before 70 AD with the exception that some people would argue that the book of Revelation was written around 90 AD. Um, a lot of that confusion comes because um, John was actually exiled to the Isle of Patmos twice. Okay, So he was exiled in the 60s and he was exiled in the 90s. And so people, when it says, I was on the Isle of Patmos, and, you know, right, they, they assume it's when it was in the 90s. But actually it also talks in the Revelation who it says in, in the time of this Roman leader, which was in the 60s. You know, so I think I'm going to stick with the translation that it happened in the 60s. But um, if you want, you can put it in the 90s, and many scholars do believe that. And so um, it's open to debate. But apart from Revelation, I want you to know that every book of the Bible very, very, very clearly is written uh, before AD 70. And so it's quite interesting, but it's also quite important to know that because something significant happens in AD 70. And so in AD 70... Um, the destruction of Jerusalem happens, okay? So Jerusalem, the temple, all the whole place gets absolutely destroyed. I mean, it's, it's brutal. And I want to mention this because it's important we realize that there was an end to the law. There was an end to the old covenant. And so actually there's a, a point in Jesus's ministry um, where he looks at the temple and, and all the people around him going, wow, look at this temple. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it wonderful? Now, this temple was amazing. It was wonderful. They estimate um, that in today's money, each square foot, okay, so each square foot this size could be worth in today's money as much as $100 million each square foot. I mean, this is astronomically valuable thing. I mean, and it's basically just gems and gold and I mean it's just ridiculous the place I mean it's really really bad and it's because they just rebuilt it they come out of their exile it was it was brutal I mean it, they bragged about this thing this was like Israel's token piece of like look how great we are um and so yeah they, they really like this and so they're like Jesus look at the temple isn't it amazing and he says that temple is going to be torn down and rebuilt in three days and like what and and he and <laughs> and they're like, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? And this is actually after he's, he's, uh, he's yelled abuse at the Pharisees, he says, your whole time is coming to an end, your whole system is a joke. I mean, so there's this whole thing going on that he's, he's talking about these um, different elements of the Pharisees, your time is coming to an end, this, you're not going to be able to lord over people and, and be abusive to people. And then they mention the temple and he says, that's going to fall apart as well, I'm going to tear it down and rebuild it in three days. And, and everyone's like, this is kind of crazy. And in this context, they say, Lord, when will the end of the age come and the coming of your kingdom be? Now, in that context, because oftentimes we read that and go, oh, they're talking about when's the end of the world and Jesus is going to come back. Well, Jesus isn't gone anywhere and they don't know he's going to go anywhere because they're shocked when he dies, right? I mean, so like, it's not like they were expecting him to disappear. And in the context, what's he just said? He said, I'm going to tear down the temple. I'm going to destroy the temple and I'm going to rebuild it. What's he saying? He's saying this system is gone. This system is crumbling. I'm going to destroy the system that the Pharisees have built and the temple is, is currently built on, and then I'm going to rebuild it. So he's saying there's a new kingdom coming. There's a new way. And they're expecting him to be the king, right? He's the Messiah. He's going to be a king. He's going to rule Israel. That's what they wanted from the Messiah. And so when they say, when is going to be the end of the age and the coming of your kingdom, they're saying, 
when is going to be the end of the Israel system that is now, this covenant that they have with God, and the coming of Jesus' reign. Jesus is going to reign on the earth as the king of Israel. And what does he say? He says, wow. He says, it will happen within one generation. Now, a generation in Jewish um, tradition is 40 years, 40 years' time. Um, and he says, it will happen within one generation. And then he gives a whole bunch of uh, prophecies, right? And you remember these prophecies? He says, you know, um, the, uh, the sun will turn to uh, blood and, you know, there's going to be earthquakes and there's going to be famines and you'll be surrounded by vultures and you have to flee and not one of you will be harmed. And, um, but woe to pregnant mothers and woe to nurse, those nursing babies and, um, you know, all these different prophecies uh, going on. Yeah, you remember this? Um, and you'll know you'll see the abomination of desolation in the temple and all these different prophecies. Now, you'll have heard these again and again and again in the context of one day, Jesus is going to come back. And the way we know Jesus is going to come back is because this is going to happen and that's going to happen and this is going to happen. And you hear like nonsense. A lot of um, uh, preachers, especially recently, were teaching about blood moons and stuff like that. Oh, there's been blood moons. Let me tell you, there's blood moons all the time. They're not uncommon. Um, but charismatics love it because, well, there's a blood moon right now and that's one of the signs. And they're like, oh, Jesus is coming back February 2016. And I'm like, oh man, I must have missed him. Um, but so did the people teaching it because they've moved on to teaching something else that's manipulative and destructive. Um, but... Anyway, something else that sells books. Um, but the point is, um, we often put this over there, over that place, somewhere over there, because we go, oh, the end of the age and the coming of his kingdom, that's all of earth just kind of like burning up and then, you know, like Jesus coming back and creating a new heaven and a new earth and he's riding on the clouds and, you know, like that's what we think it is. But it's so dangerous to do this because we need to remember when is all this written? It's written before 70 AD. It's written in, in the time frame where it's, it's warning us uh, about something. It's talking about something. When did Jesus give this prophecy? Around 30 AD or so, right? I mean, about 30 years after he's been born, maybe 33 years, you know, in this window of his ministry. And what does he say? Within one generation, this will happen. Well, what's one generation? Add 40 years. Where does it take you? 70, 73 AD. So when Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD, and the temple is destroyed, and there's no longer an ability to make sacrifices and do the Jewish rituals, what is it saying? The age has ended. My kingdom is here. And this is what's interesting, and this is why a lot of um, what has to be written again and again, and this is why they bring up the law so much, is that the law was still happening. Do you know, if you look through um, Jewish history, the, the way they, they engaged with it, it's quite funny. Um, so they had the outer courts and then the inner court and then the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies is where God lived. Uh, he's behind the, the curtain. And, uh, and only one person could go behind the curtain once a year. Uh, the high priest, he would go beyond. And after he's done all the sacrifices and they do this in the outer courts and they go inside and they do the different rituals. And then they go into the inner Holy of Holies. This one guy and he'd be wearing this big like long robes and he'd even have like bells attached to him that would constantly be like ringing as he goes in. So he's waddling along and the bells are ringing. And the reason he has bells is because when he goes in the Holy Holies, if God's pissed off, boom, you're dead. You fall over and the bells stop ringing. And you're like, yeah, he's dead. And they would pull him out. He'd be attached to a rope. Like this is genuinely, God gives him these rules. When he's making the rules, he's like, all right, so the high priest, cover him in bells, get a rope on him because I might kill him if I'm not happy. And you gotta be thinking, I don't like the role of high priest anymore. Can I get a new job? I wanna be a farmer. Um, <laughs> But this is what that, you know, this is the kind of intensity of going into the Holy of Holies. And one of the things that the high priest would wear is something called an ephod. Um, and so it was this kind of like little uh, vest thing that they wore. And on it 
were um, a whole bunch of stones. So it was 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And then there was a, an, an umum and a thumum. And I'm probably saying that horrendously. Um, hopefully no one that speaks Hebrew is watching this. Um, but these two stones were like a yes stone and a no stone. And they would actually vibrate, okay? So like Christians have been doing the whole crystals vibrate long before numistics, uh, before the mystics. Um, and so you've got the yes stone and the no stone. And it was kind of funny because the, the high priest would seek God and kind of do 20 questions. You know, so they could only ask questions that could be answered yes, no. So, you know, if you answer God, what date will, uh, you know, our next battle be? That's not a question that he would answer. Um, but you could say, will we go to battle? And then the yes stone would vibrate. And you're like, oh, oh my gosh, is it next week? Yes. Oh, is it on Monday? No. Oh, uh, is it on Tuesday? Yes. Oh, okay. I mean, this is, and this is kind of funny, right? I mean, it, if we're honest, this is kind of really funny because we get the privilege of just talking to God now and engaging with him. But they, they would go to the high priest and he would do this and he would engage with us. And this is why you see throughout the Old Testament, people would go to the prophets, they would go to the priests because there was only select people. And the way the high priest spoke was, was this yes, no thing. And one of the main uses for this, this uh, ephod was at the end of the year after he'd gone through all these sacrificial processes and he'd go into the Holy of Holies and they would go before God and they would say, God, have our sacrifices been pleasing to you? Do you forgive the nation of Israel? And the yes or no stone would vibrate. Now, if you, the no stone vibrates, you're not going beyond those curtains, right? You're like, ah, I'm good. I'll just stay this side. I think we'll try again next year. Um, now, what's interesting is um, between the exile and between uh, Jesus coming, uh, so around 0 AD, so for several hundred years, the yes stone, every single year, there was the yes stone. The, the, the people of Israel were... It was pleasing. It was accepting. Yes, I forgive you. Do you know what's interesting is from the year that Jesus died until 70 AD, every single year it was no. And they didn't know what the heck was going on because it made no sense at all. It just didn't make sense that this was happening. Um, in this period, a lot of stuff is going on. So between the periods of 30 and 70 AD, there's earthquakes all throughout the known world. I mean, this is where some of the most devastating earthquakes, even volcanoes that are caused from earthquakes, this is in the same sort of period that, you know, like Pompeii happened, I think it's a little after 70 AD, but there's lots of earthquakes going on in the known world. It's, it's a time of serious devastation. And we know this from historical archives. I mean, people wrote history down that it's not that long ago, 2,000 years, and there's lots of records. We look back and this entire cities were destroyed, entire villages just swallowed up in the ground when the ground just split open. And it's not like they make earthquake-safe houses at this point either. Um, you know, like, earthquakes were a big deal. Um, and we think, you know, wow, there's so many earthquakes today. And it's like, well, yeah, but we're just really good at measuring it. It's like, oh my gosh, there's a big earthquake uh, 300 miles out to sea. And it was like four on the Richter scale. And I saw a glass move in my house. And it's like, no, when they write about earthquakes 2,000 years ago, it was like, uh, remember that town? It's gone now. Uh, I'm going to miss Steve. Him and his wife and their kids were really nice. And I, I think they just went straight down with their house. I don't know. And, I mean, that's the kind of earthquakes they're recording. You know, we're recording everything. And there's bad earthquakes today. I'm not saying there isn't. But, you know, we think, oh, my gosh, there's so much earthquake activity. But there's always been a lot of earthquake activity. But in history, this was unprecedented. This was like, Wow, there's so many earthquakes going on. Remember, so it said there was going to be earthquakes, there's going to be famines. There were so many famines going on, but do you know there's a massive, epic famine that covered the whole known world, that affected all the known world. And as far as history is concerned, it's one of the worst famines that's ever taken place. And do you know what the epicenter of it was? Jerusalem. And you know, we don't even need to read a history book. We can read our Bible. Paul does an entire missionary trip where he travels around all the different churches. And what's he doing? He's raising money for the church in Jerusalem to help with the famine. And it says that in our Bible. 
He's saying, I'm coming to you soon. Make sure you're doing some serious offerings because we need money for the church in Jerusalem. And so there's famine all throughout the world, but it's hitting Jerusalem the worst. And so there's famines going on. There's all sorts of things. It talks about nations rising up against nations, but, um, and, and that's really interesting. So it says you'll be wars and rumors of wars. Have you ever thought about that and gone, wow, great prophecy, Jesus, right? You're like, oh yeah, wars and rumors of wars. That's like when uh, you know, these, uh, these guys, probably the same people talking about blood moons, they give these prophecies of like, oh, God's going to judge uh, the homosexuals and there'll be an earthquake in California to prove he's angry. And it's like, uh, California's on the ring of fire. It gets earthquakes like eight times a day at least, you know? Not bad ones necessarily, but it's like saying there's going to be an earthquake in California is not a hard prophecy. Do you know what I mean? You're like, well done. Um, it's like, oh my gosh, the prophet was right. There's an earthquake. Oh, there's another earthquake again. I wonder what that one was for, right? It's just ridiculous. And so we read, we read this prophecy from Jesus saying, oh, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. And in our context, we look at it and we're like, uh, yeah. What's your point? There's always wars and rumors of wars. But that is the point. You see, when Jesus gave that prophecy, there weren't wars and there weren't even rumors of wars because actually this is in a time called Pax Romana. So again, if you studied Romans in the school, you maybe uh, learned that Pax Romana was a time of Roman peace. That's what it means, Roman peace. And actually, a lot of scholars disagree on how long the peace was. It depends on your definition of peace, right? Um, but most scholars would agree that it was at least 30, 40 years, and it could have been as much as about 120 years, where there was no known wars on the known planet. Um, and so in the Roman Empire, now again, your definition of peace, when you're being subjugated and the Romans are taking over and they're forcing you not to have a war, <laughs> what, what is peace? But, but at this time, there weren't wars. There was no worry about a nation going against a nation because everything was the Romans, you know? And anything that wasn't the Romans, we're not touching the Romans at all. We're good. You stay over there. We'll stay over here. We're good, right? So there was no rumors of war or anything. And so actually, when Jesus says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, that's pretty significant because you're talking, some of these people have never even heard of a war. And some of their parents have never even heard of a war. I mean, this is quite unheard of for us, you know, I mean, in this context that we have today. So we hear there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, and we're like, oh, yeah, that's definitely what's happening today. And it's like, well, yeah, but there's been wars and rumors of wars all the time. The only significant time and period in history is then, because there weren't wars and rumors of wars, and then they started. And so actually in this time, all sorts of skirmishes and, and problems break out in the Roman Empire, and there's lots of stuff going on. But on top of that, it talks about nations rising up against uh, other nations and, and Judaism. And actually, in this time, there was unprecedented persecution of the Jews. In fact, the Jews were hated and reviled. And a lot of it was the Jews brought it on themselves. The Jews tried to violently rebel, rebel against Rome, and they responded in type. Um, but the Roman citizens around the, the, the world hated the Jews, and they started to persecute and kill the Jews. And we're talking thousands and thousands of Jews. Some, there's one instance that I've, I've read about of one town that literally schemed together and says, we hate the Jews, let's kill them all. And what they did is in one night, they went around and they killed every man, woman, and child that was a Jew in the town. And I think it's about 15,000 Jews died that day. Just in one night, they just whoo, wiped them out. I mean, they hated the Jews at this point. So again, Jesus's words coming true, uh, coming about. The blood moon thing, yeah, there's blood moons all the time, but there's blood moons then. So, you know, that's another element, but you know, okay. Um, and so all these different words that Jesus is giving are coming about. Now, in the midst of this, as it comes up to the end, as we come up to about 70 AD, around 67 AD, um, the Caesar at the time gives, uh, he speaks to a general and says, look, general, it's General Titus. He's over a, a large uh, legion of uh, Roman centurions. And he said, I want you to go to Jerusalem and just kill everyone. Just take it out. I'm done. 
fed up with the Jews. Um, and the Jews at this time, they've been trying to skirmish, they've been trying to rise up against the Roman Empire and take their own uh, uh, you know, nation back and everything. And, and so they've got the hatred for the Jews, and they've also got the Jews are being a pain in the butt. And so they go, look, just go to Jerusalem, kill everyone, I'll just make it easier, we're done. Hate the Jews, wipe them off the planet. And so General Titus heads to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem closes the doors, firms up the, uh, the gates and, and all their defenses, and uh, General Titus kind of stands outside, and he, he laid a bit of a siege, and he's trying to um, run them down. But Jerusalem, pretty, pretty tough place to get into. You're not getting in there easily. Um, and so they've surrounded Jerusalem. Um, now, again, did you, you guys did some Romans uh, in school. You studied the Romans. What's on their shields? Anyone remember? An eagle, exactly. So when we see Jesus saying, you'll know because the vultures surround Jerusalem. Do you know what? That word vulture is the same word eagle, vulture, or the same words in Greek. So it's, it's completely interchangeable. And so we say vulture because it sounds more like, oh, vultures, and they're going to be pecking away at something. But eagle is exactly the same translation, but actually it makes more sense now because you'll know because the eagles surround Jerusalem. Oh, who surrounded Jerusalem? All the Roman soldiers. What's on their shields? Eagles, what were they known to be? Like they, they were synonymous with that eagle sign was Rome. Um, and so you know when they surround. And so the siege is going on, and, and they're, they're locked in this, this uh, siege. Um, now at this time, uh, a young man, a very charismatic man, rises up to, uh, to prominence inside Jerusalem, and, and he's declaring himself to be uh, the Messiah. Now this is not uncommon. There was dozens and dozens of Messiahs all the time. Everyone and their mom was the Messiah. Um, and this is why even in Jesus' time, while Jesus was alive, there was at least 40 people that were uh, that we know of in the history books that said, I'm the Messiah. So you know, Jesus claims I'm the Messiah, not that uncommon. Um, and a lot of it is because when we look at the book of Daniel and we look at the times, and if you turn the weeks into groups of years and things like that, it coincides to when Jesus was born was said in Daniel. The, the year lines up to the day. And actually then it lines up to the day when he would die. And actually then when you continue, and it talks about Daniel, the end of the world, the whole world and the ending, we then go, okay, that lines up perfectly to his birth. That lines up perfectly to his death. Now, if we keep using the same framework and the same model, and we add those weeks and we turn them into years, then the next thing is the destruction of the temple. But we won't use that. We'll completely throw that out and we'll say it's a completely different model and it's going to be sometime in the future the world went. Or maybe he just literally is talking about Jerusalem being destroyed. So again, you add those weeks and it comes to 70 AD. Um, now, um, so this Messiah, false Messiah, rises up and he's very convincing and, and a lot of things the Messiahs did, they did all sorts of things. One of the things they did was they jumped off the... Uh, the, uh, the temple, you know, so remember Satan tempts Jesus and says, look, jump off and, you know, the angels will save you, blah, blah, blah. That was a common myth that the Messiah would do, and that's what they would do. And this is how you usually found out that the Messiah was false, because they were a pancake on the floor. Um, and so people would frequently, I mean, dozens and dozens of people would be jumping off going, I'm the Messiah, and jump off and, uh, all right, guys, let's go back to work. You know, I mean, like, that's kind of how it went. Um, these guys were interesting teachers. They would heal. They would do all sorts of stuff. And then, oh, never mind. They're not the Messiah. Um, so this guy, he rises up to power, and uh, I, his name's escaped me for the, for the moment, so I'll, I'll come back to that. I can't remember. Um, yeah, it's escaped me. Um, he rises up to power, and very convincing, very, very charismatic leader. He, he's got most of the, the people, I mean, a massive group of people following, going, yeah, this is great. And his message was a message, you know, we, we are too... Uh, too trusting of ourselves. We'll never defeat the Romans because we're trusting our 
ability to do it ourselves. We need to trust God. God is going to save us. And the, the biggest thing we have right now is we're in this safe uh, fortification, the city. It's completely safe. They can't even get in. We'll be fine. And what we need to do is we, we, we'll be fine for about five years. We've got enough food in the city. We've got enough stuff, water and everything. We're going to be fine. What we need to do is we need to burn all our food. And that'll prove that only God can save us. We'll need God to step in. And so, I mean, this guy's charismatic. People believed him. And uh, boom, all the, all the food, all the grain, all the, the cattle and everything they brought in and they just offered it up. And it was a bit of a offering a sacrifice to God and at the same time saying, we don't need to trust ourselves. We can trust God will protect us. Um, now, the problem is he was a false messiah. Jesus came a while back. This is not how God works. Um, so then they were really hungry very quickly. Very, very, very hungry because all the food's gone. Um, and this is where, uh, at this point, it gets really bad, okay? So, I mean, this is getting bad and bad and bad. Um, you know that every person that tried to sneak out, when they caught them, they crucify them. People coming into the town that were found to be Jewish would be crucified. And it said that, actually, there were 500 crosses leading up to Jerusalem. And they said that they couldn't, uh, they, they didn't have enough crosses. They were crucifying 2,000, 3,000 people every day. And so what they would have to do is they put people up on the cross and be like, all right, they've suffered enough, let's just kill them, get them down so we can get the next person up. They didn't even let them die on the cross because it was just, it was too long a process, crucifixion. And so they were crucifying thousands of people every day that were trying to escape because you would try and escape because you're starving to death. And if you're not going to try and escape, what's your options? Well, what the options were was we eat every animal on the planet. Like, I mean, just any animal we can find, we eat it. But then you run out of animals. It doesn't take that long. An entire city, there's about three million people living in this city. Um, there's nothing left. What do we do now? Woe to you who are nursing babes or pregnant. They turned and started eating children. So the babies and the children next. You just start eating them, and this is what happens. And, and you have stories. I mean, these are horrendous stories. You have stories of mothers who would kill their children and start cooking them, but other people could smell that their child was being cooked, and they would break in and steal the child and go off and eat. So you don't even get to eat your child after you've killed it. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that was going on. I mean, horrendous, horrific, awful. You know, we, we talk about bad, and this is bad. You know, we look at Jesus' prophecy and go, oh, it's really, really bad. And it's like, yeah. And if you do any history, you'll find out it was really bad. It's not that there's some horrible, end times, terrible thing going to happen. That happened, and it was awful. It was the worst thing that's ever happened. I mean, it's just horrendous. And it's got worse and worse and worse, and it got more and more and more. And so as you, and I'm not going to go into the depths of Jesus' prophecy, but what I want you to see is that this prophecy Jesus is giving, he said when it would happen, it happened then. Not only that, all the things he promised would happen, happened. And so I want you to see that this is very clearly about a certain time. I don't want you to think, oh, the law is still around. We're still in the old covenant. This was the end. And actually this, um, this uh, charismatic false messiah, one of the things he did was he went in and he made his base the temple. He was like, I'm the messiah. I'm in the temple. And so he sat down in, in, in the temple and would proclaim himself, I am the messiah. I am, I am God's chosen anointed king. And what does Jesus' prophecy say? You will know that the time has come when the abomination of desolation sits in the temple. And what's interesting is, do you know what they called him afterwards? They, the Jews, not Christians, they called him the abomination of desolation. They saw what he had done. They said, you have completely destroyed him. I mean, he, he completely ruined everything for them. I mean, probably wasn't going to go well anyway, but it was pretty bad. Um, I mean, it was absolutely hor horrible. Um, now, at a certain point, okay, at a certain point, it just gave up. And, and what, one of the things, one of the reasons it took so long, actually, is that Caesar died. Caesar died uh, 
um, around that time. Uh, so it was, I think it was Nero that commissioned and said, I want you to go and destroy all of them. He died, um, and General Titus is left going, oh, I wonder, maybe the new guy doesn't want me to destroy Jerusalem, so I'll kind of, I'll just kind of hold back a little bit and let them do their thing in the thing, and we'll wait out. And so it took a, quite a few months. It kind of dragged out again. And then he got new orders. Yeah, no, I want you to go ahead and destroy it. And so eventually he then really upped the siege, and he, he was like, we need to get in there. And so they eventually get in, and it's and it said when by the time he got in, the blood in the streets was up to the Roman horse's knees. I don't know how much that's hyperbole or whatever, but... It was bad. I mean, things were bad. Do you know that um, they went in, they killed what was left. Um, they destroyed everything. And it's almost like the guy was reading Jesus' prophecy because you know what he did? When he destroyed the temple, he literally asked them to till the soil so that not one stone would lie on another. And you're like, Jesus literally said that phrase. And so did this, Ro this Roman um, general. Nothing was left. Of the three million Christ uh, Jews that were left, they estimate there was a between 120 and 150,000. That was it. The Jews almost were eradicated and extinct. I mean, there was Jews around the world as well, you know, and, and, but it was bad. Um, and actually, a lot of people, like, um, they like to try and read the Bible into the situation. They're like, well, maybe there was 144,000 that were left, right? So, and maybe, I don't know, but um, we don't know that. That's not an accurate consensus, so I, I don't know. But it, it would be interesting as well, because obviously that plays into some of what was said. Um, and so actually when you read this text, you read um, what's going on, you have to remember that Corinthians, you know, uh, Hebrews, these books were written before 70. So it's really important, again, when we read it context, we've got Jesus here, all of the New Testament, 70 AD. Us, like here. So it's really important when we read a thing saying, if you don't stop your course of violence, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you go, well, he's probably saying, don't have a violent rebellion. Peace is the way. Uh, follow me, I'm not about empire, I'm not about building a massive government and a massive military, I'm about loving your neighbor, loving your enemy, and actually, if you keep going on your military route, there's gonna be weeping a national teeth because Rome is gonna rise up against you and destroy you. That's a better interpretation than, oh, uh, something, something, weeping a national teeth somewhere far off in hell. Well, maybe, but probably this. Yeah. Or, you know, uh, I'm predicting in 40 years, which is right here, uh, that Jerusalem's gonna be destroyed and the old covenant's gonna end and there'll be a new kingdom that has come. That's very likely he's talking about this and that the new kingdom that has come is here. Yeah. But no, 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 it's obviously something over there. Jesus is gonna come back and he's gonna stop things and then it'll be a new thing. And so, um, and I'm not trying to mess too much with your end times. You can have an end times theology that allows for that stuff, that's it's okay. Um, but I'm just saying we need to understand that this was about predominantly and primarily, these prophecies were about the old covenant is ending. And so when, when these authors are writing to Jews and Jewish populations, they still have a temple. People are still going down the temple, killing their cows and killing their goats, and, or not goats, that wouldn't be good because God doesn't like goats, killing cows and killing sheep, killing doves or whatever they're doing. They're offering their sacrifices. They're trying to please God. They're going down to the synagogues and these are still in place. And so you've got this kind of tension of like, well, we know what Christianity is, but we also have Judaism and they're kind of both going along just fine. And so there's a sudden line where it's like, boom, no, it's ended. And this is more where we see the warning in Hebrews. You know, he's saying, look, the old covenant is fading away. It's growing old. You don't want to stay in this thing because it's about to end. It's really important that we see this, really important that we grasp that the old covenant has ceased, has come to an end. If you don't understand that, you're always going to run the risk of going back and being like, oh, well, maybe, maybe it's still for me a little bit. Maybe a little bit of the law I can keep. Um, and so you, we need to be careful of that. 
So that's, that's kind of dealt with, hopefully, that's helped you understand and, and deal with the, okay, so maybe it's still around, maybe it's not. It really ended, so the Old Covenant, because this is a problem. So we, and Jesus, so we think, well, when did the Old Covenant end? We know when the New Covenant started, right? So, you know, Jesus comes and he dies and he raises from the dead and he commissions us, go like force. The Holy Spirit comes. You know, That's clear indication that something new has started. And, and we see in the book of Acts, there's new things happening and all sorts of stuff's going on. But it's actually quite hard because the Old Covenant has uh, historically been something that we didn't have a, a, a clear line of like, oh, it, it ended. Because most people don't know about 70 AD. They don't study. I mean, you type 70 AD into Google, there's... Thousands and thousands and thousands of documents and things talking about. It's not something that we didn't know about. It's one of the most epic sieges on a on a uh, on a city that ever happened. I mean, it's really all throughout history. Um, they've they've talked about this, and so um, it's not a secret. But it's just we don't talk about it in church because we don't think it's relevant or contextual. Um, but it's deeply, deeply relevant. Um, and so anyway, that's that. But I want to talk about a few other things because what you'll find is when you start talking about well, the law isn't um, isn't good for Christians. Um, You'll start to find people, well, yeah, but that's, that's true of the, these laws, but it's not true of these laws, right? So we, we start to break the laws up, don't we? So when we go, oh, well, yeah, I mean, like tattoos and eating lobster, that's okay. You can eat some bacon, that's fine. But you can't kill someone. And so we, we still pick, well, that's a law we need. We need a law that says do not kill. Um, and so these people like to segment and break the laws apart. Um, and so one of the ways they do it, now the primary way we break the law apart, if we're honest, is we go, these are laws I don't have a problem with doing, and these are the laws I do have a problem with, right? That's actually what we do. So we go, well, I'm not going to murder anyone, so let's keep that rule. Uh, I'm straight, so let's hate gay people. Uh, but I actually kind of like bacon, so we'll have the bacon, right? If we're honest, that's largely how we pick and choose the laws. Um, at least on a subconscious level. But one of the other ways we, we justify it, at least, is we break them up into moral and ceremonial and, and um, civil laws. And so, oh, these are the laws that affect how you communicate with other people. And these are the laws that are how you govern your life. And these are the laws that deal with the community. And these are the laws that deal with God. And so we try and break them up into parts. And, and you'll see this a lot of the time um, with people that go, well, the Ten Commandments are still important today and you've got to make sure you obey the Ten Commandments and these aren't important it's not as important because they've been done away with and that's nice and all and I see where they're coming from if you're going to pick the most important commandments what are you going to pick? Ten, Ten Commandments I mean they're the ones you know God chiseled them on a bit of rock you know what I mean he's really into that um, and so yeah absolutely those are the most important but it's important that we then look at the context of some of these passages that we're looking at so 2 Corinthians is a great context uh, the 2 Corinthians 3 7 the law is a ministry of death 2 Corinthians 3 9 it's a ministry of condemnation 2 Corinthians 10 it's at, it doesn't look good at all in comparison to the new covenant uh, 2 Corinthians 3 um, 13, uh, 14 and 15 what does it say anywhere the law is preached it creates a mind hardening and heart hardening veil from Jesus well where did, how does that start it says the law which is engraved in stone is a ministry of death, is a ministry of condemnation, is nothing in comparison to the new covenant, is what blinds your mind and your heart to Jesus. So even if you break them up, and you can do that if you want, um, still kind of deals with the very top and works down. And so you can't even break up these laws. So don't go away either thinking, yeah, yeah, the laws, no, I can eat bacon, I can eat lobster, I can do this, I can do that, but I can't do this or I can't do that and I can't do that. And this is the thing, the law, it's not about, oh, I get to break the laws anymore. It's just that I'm not looking at these laws anymore. They're not what govern me, okay? And so, well, we can look at this. And so like, I want you to think about, um, 
If, do you remember the thing where it says that, that, that God found fault with the law and enacted a, a better covenant on better promises? It's really hard for me to get my head around that because I'm like, well, God gave the law and does God give things that are faulty? Um, but I often forget that actually, while God gave the law, it wasn't his plan. And we often gloss over that, don't we? We, we forget that actually God didn't want to give the law. Uh, it's in the same way that God didn't want a king. And the people were like, oh, we want a king. And he's like, okay, fine, you can have Saul. Good luck. Um, right? Um, and so um, God didn't want to give the law. God actually spoke to Moses, and Moses went to the people of Israel, and he said, um, God wants to be your God, and you are to be his people, and you'll speak with him. You'll be his priests. You'll be his kings. You'll have this relationship with God, and you'll, he'll guide you and lead you. And what did they do? They said, Moses, we saw you up on that mountain, and there was lightning and thunder, and there was an earthquake, and there was clouds and fire. You, you just talk to God and tell us what to do. That was how they responded to that offer. You can be his people. He'll be your God. You'll have relationship. You'll be a priest and a king to God. It's an elevation of everyone. It's, it's this amazing opportunity. And actually, what does Peter say? Peter gives the same prophecy, doesn't he? And he says, finally, we've got it as Christians. We've stepped into what God always wanted. But people said that and they said, no, Moses, we're scared of talking to God because he looks scary. We saw how scary it was when you went up the mountain to speak to him. You go and ask him what to do and we'll, tell, we'll do whatever you tell us. And then what does he come back with? He comes back with what to do. <laughs> they asked for the law and he gave it. But actually, even deeper than that, I want you to stop and think, did the law originate with Moses or did it originate somewhere even earlier. You see, if you actually stop and think about what is the law, the law is knowing what's right and wrong, yeah? So, I, well, the law says this is right and this is wrong. So where did it actually begin? The law began when we took the bite and we started to know what is right and what is wrong. And you see, the law is something so much bigger than actually what we see in the Bible, this big list of rules. The law is something much deeper than that. So these are laws, but actually there's something deeper that, again, in the same way of sin, there's something you do, but there's actually sin in the sense of like this, this belief system that causes you to do that. In the same way, law, there's, there's lists of laws, but actually there's a, there's a whole way of being that is law. Law is a, a thing that says, I'm going to try and figure out what's right and what's wrong and live based on what's right and what's wrong. And that is what God never wanted. If you stop and think, can you ever think about actually the garden and they, he didn't want them to eat the knowledge of good, good and evil? Because we often think the truth of the knowledge of good and evil, we just think, well, it introduced evil into the world. You know, we bit it and then evil came and sin came. But that's not what it was. Actually, it introduced good and evil, the knowledge of those two elements. So actually, before they ate that fruit, they didn't know what was good and what was bad. You ever thought about that? They just didn't know. And God's one thing he said is he's like, I don't want you to eat from this. God doesn't want them to know what's right and wrong. Have you ever thought about that? It's absolutely mind-blowing. Can we pause? Is that all right? Just because we're recording and stuff. But like, um, it's, it's just, it's absolutely mind-blowing that God goes, I don't, I don't actually want you to know what's right and wrong. What I want is for you to walk with me and just live in that way live walking with me. And so again, it goes to the me versus we. Me says, I want to know what's right so I can do it, and I want to know what's wrong so I don't do it. We says, kind of what's right and wrong is kind of irrelevant. If I'm living, it's no longer me, but Christ in me, how much wrong do you think Christ is gonna do? 
Is, is Jesus' core motivation? I really want to go and kill a bunch of people. Now, if you think Jesus looks at the Father and you think the Father's like the Old Testament, some of the models, yeah, maybe Jesus is going to kill everyone, but let's to put that to the side. Um, I mean, is Jesus going to go and just like go, ah, oh, I'm just going to go have an affair. That's what I feel like doing. Is that the fruit of the Spirit? I mean, if, if you are truly believing that actually I'm walking with the Spirit and he's going to produce fruit in me, are you worried you're going to do wrong? Do you need the law? Do you need to know what's right and wrong if you're just walking? Like Jesus says, I only say what I hear my father say. I only do what I see my father do. Jesus didn't care what was right and what was wrong. He only did what he saw his father do. And so he didn't need a list of rules and regulations. He just did what his father did. And he knew, I'm not going to sin. Because I'm not going to sin if I'm doing what my father's doing. And so it's really important that we, we understand that when I say we're not living under the law, the law is not relevant to us, it's not I'm saying, well, the law says don't kill so you can kill. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, do you really need the rule, don't kill? It's the only reason you're not killing people right now because there's a rule that says do not kill. If so, please stay away from me and everyone I love. Because um, that's terrifying, right? I mean, if that's honestly the case, the only reason that you're not killing people because it says don't kill is the only reason you're not um, in an adulterous relationship because it says do not commit adultery. That's messed up. Can you imagine you said that to your, your spouse and you're like, oh, you know, um, I love being married to you, but um, the truth is the only reason I'm not sleeping with other people is because it says in the Bible, don't sleep with other people. It's like, oh, wow, I bet they feel loved, right? <laughs> And that really indicates some really healthy elements in your relationship. Of course not, right? I mean, the, the reason you're not sleeping with anyone is because you, it's not even entered your mind, you know? It's like, I love you. Um, and, and this is what the law is. It's, 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 this, it's this revealing that we can't be trusted in and of ourselves on our own. But actually, when we put that to the side and go, well, I'm not on my own. On my own, it doesn't exist anymore. The only time it does exist is when I forget I'm not on my own, right? Because even when you go off and do things, me, 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 it's still we. God's still walking along going, man, I wish they would remember I'm here because this is stupid. We could just not do this and I've got a better idea. So even when we do it on our own, it's still a lie. We're not on our own. And so on your own is a complete lie. And so the only time the law is required is when you are trying to do it in your own strength. And that is never, ever required. It's never needed. And so... This whole thing, it's not to say, go sin. It's not to say anything like that. But actually it's saying, well, sin is caused when you're living under the law. Because when you live under the law, what should I do? What shouldn't I do? That then goes to, I'm trying to do something myself. And what does that cause? Failure, right? We know that. We see the rules, go try and do this. And you're like, oh, crap. And you're like, oh, don't do this. And it's like, oh, yeah, there it is. I did it. That's what happens when we try and do it ourselves. So this is a complete fallacy. It's a law. It's, it's, it's a false system to try and make you feel safe, but it doesn't work. And if anything, it makes things worse. But actually, when we put it to the side and go, God, I'm not going to live based on what's right and what's wrong. My choice is to live based on what are you saying to me right now? And this is why it's I will live by faith. I'm going to live listening to that voice. What are you saying to me? What are you speaking? I'm going to constantly respond, yes, okay, okay, okay. And just constantly replying to God, okay, and walking in that is, a, is an amazing life. That's why it says a just will live by faith. Um, and so this is why Paul then, he goes on in, in Romans uh, 8. I don't really think we'll have time to overly go into that, but he talks about contrasting and he says, look, there's those that walk in the flesh and those that walk in the spirit. 
And he says, walking in the flesh leads to sin, but walking in the spirit will always lead to righteousness. And so your option is, will I walk in the flesh, me, just living me, ignoring the fact that I'm now one with God, or will I walk in the spirit? If I walk in the spirit, the law isn't relevant. It's not needed. It's not something that I need to fixate on or make important. Does that make sense? Do you guys, you guys follow what I'm saying? You're not, you're not thinking, oh no, he's saying we can go and sin and you know, you should burn the Bible and like just go and do whatever you want. I'm not saying that at all. But remember that the law hasn't worked for you anyway. I think that's the big thing I, I'm always challenged by is people go, well, don't, you can't get rid of the law. And I'm like, well, is it working? Are you, how's that going for you? And that was Paul's message to the Jews as well, wasn't it? He was like, well, the law is not exactly doing great. Right? And I, I love this in, in Galatians 2, um, I think it's about verse 20 or so. Um, I think it's verse 16 through to kind of 23 or so. Um, he's talking about the laws, he's talking to Jews, and he says, Look, we know the law doesn't work. And he says, How do we know this? Because God gave us the best set of laws, and we still couldn't do them. And so, you know, Paul's talking, and he's, he's talking to this Galatia group that, um, that probably would have been Jews there, but it's probably a lot more uh, mixed and diversified than uh, the, the group was in, in Rome at this time. And he's saying, look, we know, we, the Jews, we know that the law doesn't work. How? Because God gave us his laws. And you bet they're the best laws. If there's any laws that are good, it's the ones that God made and chisels on a stone. And how do we know it doesn't work? Because even God's laws didn't help us. Even they didn't manage to make us righteous and pure and holy. And so we need to give up relying on the law and we need to start relying on Jesus, on his grace, on his gift. Okay, so that was Romans 7 and the law. Next week, we're going to finish up our uh, series on the law by looking at uh, love versus law and love and law. Um, It's going to be really great. So I hope to see you for that. All the videos of these um, podcasts as well are, as always, available on thegracecourse.com. If you want to, um, if you're more of a visual person, I am. I love to watch a video rather than just listen to audio. Um, you can find everything on thegracecourse.com. There's also dozens and dozens and dozens of videos on there, ranging from short three-minute thoughts for the day right through to kind of um, a couple hours long, in-depth kind of uh looks at different topics. Um, and so all of that's for free. You can check it out over at thegracecourse.com. And if you want to become a partner of this ministry and keep um, everything for free and keep all these resources available for everyone, um, you can do that as well over in the Grace Course. Um, and I'd really appreciate that. It helps me um, pay the bills, stay alive, uh, you know, put food on the table, all that kind of stuff. But it also helps pay for all the hosting and and and, and just frees me up to do uh, create more resources like this. Um, and so, yeah, if you're interested in that as well, head out over to thegracecourse.com. Okay, I love you guys. Have a great week. I'll see you next week for our podcast on love and law.